May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always and everywhere acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I have a confession to make. I am a sentimentalist. When Christmas rolls around and we get the tree decorated, I turn the lights on every morning. I walk outside just to take the lights on the front of the house in. We drive around our neighborhood, taking in the lights on other people's houses, except for the guy with the 25 inflatables. Mother Natalie hates the decorations at the guy with the 25 inflatables. I play Christmas music, and I have a litany of Christmas movies to watch, the most sentimental of which are It's a Wonderful Life and White Christmas. And some of my fondest memories from childhood was the faint glow of the Christmas tree that my parents assembled after we went to bed and blocked the view of the lit tree with a bedsheet which barely disguised its presence. As attached, though, as I am to those memories and to the annual family rituals that I've been through, they have nothing to do in particular with what I believe about Christmas. Nor do they have anything to do with why I celebrate Christmas. If they did, I must confess, there wouldn't be anything but sentiment to actually justify giving any time to the celebration of Christmas. And I probably wouldn't bother. Now, most of the other gospel stories, apart from John, find it difficult to completely resist the sentimental side of our Christmas celebration. They are inhabited by sheep and shepherds, wise men and a baby. And though, truth be told, if you get in touch with what those stories really meant in their ancient Jewish context, none of them would actually stand up to scrutiny if all there was to them but sentiment. But of all the gospel texts that we read at Christmas time, the reading from the first chapter of John's gospel completely avoids the pictures that we have smothered with two millennia of sentimentality. Apart from the passing reference to John the Baptist, there are none of the characters that dominate the other gospels. There are no shepherds or wise men. There's no reference to Herod or taxation, to Elizabeth or Mary, to Nazareth, to Bethlehem, or to a babe in a manger. This is not, I need to emphasize, because John did not know those stories or disagreed with the point that the other evangelists were trying to make. It is because he had a different point to make that they are missing. So rather than tell us stories of Jesus' birth, John starts at what one might call the other end of the story or might even call the origin story. We are told up front that Jesus is the word, the mind, and purpose of God. That the word is God and that the word was present at the very beginning of creation. But what does it mean? 
Well, in an effort to explain the significance of this truth, one theologian of the last century tells a charming story of a young prince who was looking for a maiden that might serve as his queen. And that theologian tells the story of the prince who encounters and falls in love with a beautiful young peasant girl. But the differences in their status poses a problem for him. If he cannot command her to love him because, by definition, love is voluntary, then what does he do with his true identity? If she knows it, he will never know whether her love is genuine. So instead, so the story goes, the young prince decides to assume the life of a peasant, living as they live, working as they work, struggling as they struggle, and suffering as they suffer. And by loving her first, she eventually falls in love with him. The story, I think, goes a long way to explaining John's point. But like all stories, it can only explain so much of what John is trying to say. For one thing, Jesus is not just our king or prince. Jesus is our creator. We aren't here waiting for his largesse. He is not here to impose his rule upon us as if we were here by virtue of our own power. He is the one who made us, who blessed us with the capacity for love and for relationship. And as John observes, he comes alongside of us to restore that capacity in all of its fullness. This is why John uses images like the vine and branches and talks about indwelling and friendship. If you struggle this night with childhood impressions of the Christian faith that have lost that thread of the gospel story, I invite you to consider anew tonight what the promise of Christmas is really all about. The coming of Christ is not the story of a fault-finding God who seeks to impose an alien set of values on your life or seeks to crowd out all the joy and delight that you might experience. It is the story of a God who made us for joy and delight, which is the fruit of a loving relationship with God and with our neighbors. And Jesus came to live among us to restore that gift which is native to our very being, the heart of what it means to be made in the image of God. Another point that the story of the prince does not quite capture is the emphasis that John places upon the healing, not just of humanity, but of the whole of creation. The prince falls in love with his bride and instills a love for him that would not exist without his efforts. But John wants us to know that what is at stake in the birth of Christ is not just the claim that Jesus is Lord, but that Jesus is God and creator. By contrast, John is clear. It makes no sense to believe that God is creator if God abandons creation to the power of death. And the word is unwilling 
to make that concession. So the prince's loving sacrifice reaches far beyond the relationship with his bride, even if we think of the bride as a stand-in for you and for me. God's love embraces the whole of the created order and longs to heal. If you struggled this night with approaches to the Christian faith that suggests that God is without care or concern for the world or that God loves everyone but has special friends, rest assured that is not the case. And finally, know this. The Prince of Peace is with us in the brokenness of the world that we live in this night. John offers his version of the Christmas story out of its beginnings, but he is under no illusion that the world into which Christ comes is remotely perfect or at peace. It is broken and desperately broken in many ways. That is why he talks in terms of light and darkness, truth, and the willful refusal to receive the truth. If you are a sentimentalist like me, you are painfully aware that it is hard to remain sentimental. Almost every Christmas is tinged with some measure of sorrow. Almost every relationship we nurture is imperfect. Almost every year brings loss. And even if we have an occasional year when that is not the case, an honest reading of human experience tells us that that is not the case for many of our brothers and sisters next door, across town, or around the world. And that is why sentimental feelings can never suffice as a basis for navigating life and why sentimental messages evaporate so easily in the light of day. So, if you come to church this evening convinced that Christians are people who live in denial and who are, are people who are free to wrap a warm blanket around themselves in blissful ignorance of the world's pain, or if you came here tonight with your own sorrow and loss, feeling that there is nothing to celebrate, know this. The babe in the manger is not a simple infant or the object of facile adoration. He is the vanguard of God's redeeming love offered to a world that is in pain capable of taking that pain upon himself, capable of standing alongside of us in our own loss, capable of conquest by the greatest means and the strangest means known to humankind. The conquest of sin through the one who was without sin, the conquest of sorrow by the man of sorrow conquest of power by the Prince of Peace, the conquest of death through the one who dies, conquest of hatred 
through the one whose name is love. To whom be glory this night and forevermore. Amen.